This morning's uh, scripture is Acts from Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. Uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found, named, na- found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next to the door of the synagogue. Crispius, a ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed, and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God amongst them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. So if you're new with us, um, this is what we do here at the Park Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are preaching through the book of Acts, beginning actually a new chapter. Uh, Today we're making uh, some pretty good progress through Acts. We've got 28 chapters, so 10 more left. Uh, We'll be done probably in the next 14 years. Um, So, uh, no, just kidding, but it'll be a little while. Um, This is a very, very interesting uh, chapter coming off of the heels of, of last week. And so uh, there, there are a lot of ways, and I hope you kind of feel this, that we could take some of these passages in, in, in Acts particularly. And, and what I've chosen to do over the last two weeks is, is focus in on some thir- certain things that I think often get missed in, in these passages. And I'm going to do that uh, today. But, but I want to start with just kind of a, uh, what, what I think we know uh, intuitively, at least, uh, is that a, a promise, and interestingly what we were seeing about, a promise is only as good as the one making the promise. True? Right? I, I think we, we all understand that. Um, right? So if my uh, seven-year-old daughter 
promises to give me a million dollars, right? Like I'm, like I'm taking that, like, like you, you, you can't do that, right? Like you don't have the power to do that. You don't have the ability to do that. I love you. You're sweet. That's kind. But so if Warren Buffett, right, let's just use someone like that, says, I'm going to give you a million dollars, right? Like has the power, has the ability, um, but yet maybe there's another question there, right, with Warren. You see, here's what's interesting about Acts is that Acts um, is written in really a two-volume set. You know that, right? Written by Luke, Luke Acts. They, they go together. And Luke Acts were written to a, a, a particular person named Theophilus, right? This is to Theophilus. And one of the things I think um, Theophilus is wanting or commissioned Luke to write about is how did Christianity particularly spread so quickly through the known world? Right? How did it go from like this small kind of movement, right, with this, this this band of brothers, this group, to like to the ends of the earth? Like how how was the rapid movement um, so quick, so fast? And one of the primary reasons I'm convinced that we've seen in Luke, and and you also see in in the Gospel of Luke as well, is that this is a promise Jesus said. Like Jesus said, it was going to was going to spread really rapidly. Jesus said, "Listen, it is going to spread to the ends of the earth." And so, back to the question, the idea about a promise. When Jesus makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. When Jesus declares something that is going to happen, you can be sure and certain that it will be true. And now, I think most of us in here are saying yes and amen to that. However. The difficulty for us as Christians is not that Jesus makes promises and always delivers on his promises. The hard part or difficulty for Christians is this, is how. How does Jesus fulfill his promises that are certain and true? Right? Like Warren Buffett, yes, has the ability, has the power to give any one of us a million dollars. But it would be on his terms. And imagine his terms were $25 a week until the million dollars is paid back. And some of you are doing the math in your head in that time and going, well, what? You see, Jesus decides the terms of how his promises get fulfilled. And the apostles, the apostles probably even wrestled with this. Acts 1.8, the theme verse and. In, especially in the 1045, not throwing them under the bus, but I was like, okay, if we have one verse memorized, surely it's Acts 1-8, right? It's the whole theme, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in, oh, come on, you're better than 1045, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Like this is Jesus going, listen, this is a promise, right? You're going to one, receive power, and that power has a point, right? For you to be my witnesses. And, and I can imagine when they hear that, they're like, yes, We're going to get power in the Holy Spirit, and it's for a purpose of being witnesses. But what is that witnessing, right? The Holy Spirit comes, Acts chapter 2. But what is that mission? What what road lies ahead for them? We've been through it in Acts. A road marked with a lot of suffering. A road marked with a lot of pain. a a, a A lot of persecution. A lot of rejection. Can you imagine some of the, the early followers going, wait a minute. Like back when we heard that promise... We're really wrestling through, like, is that, is that what it's going to look like? Is it really going to look like suffering? Is it really going to look like rejection? Is it really going to look like persecution? Listen, Jesus is the one who chooses how his mission gets fulfilled. Yet, here we are in Acts chapter 18, and we have seen him for some time now. A man named Paul. 
Right? We never see Paul hesitate. We never see Paul cower or waver. Right? This strong super apostle taking literally Christianity, if you will, on his back to the ends of the earth. This super missionary, this super evangelist. Like it's like he's 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 subhuman. Like he's just not human, right? Like that's at least how I feel sometimes when I read Acts. Or is he? Did you pick up as Al read Acts 18? Did you pick up maybe some different feelings that were coming from Paul than seeing him just as this superhuman with this zeal and this, this, this unquenchable thirst of advancement? You see, here's what I want us to see as we unpack Acts 18 this morning. I think Paul is actually in a place that all of us can relate to. So often Paul is not in a place that we can relate to. Right? Like getting stoned to death and drug out and he stands up and keeps marching on. And we're, we feel it. And we're like, I can't relate to that. Because that first stone coming, I'm like, I'm out. Like, you know. But we can relate. I can relate to this Paul. This one who is in a place of discouragement. He's hesitating. He's pausing. He's apprehensive. You see, while many of our lives aren't as exciting as Paul's, like I just said, can you relate to the feeling of discouragement? Maybe more particularly in this year than ever before. Things were planned and changed. Expectations not met. Things not panning out. Convictions, maybe even in your own life, weakened. Life discouraged by the way things are. You see, even in seeing Paul in all of his superhuman zeal, I love that we get to see that Paul in this passage is just as human as we are. That Paul's life, like ours, runs on two rails. And this is for you as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're just peering and hear this. It runs on two rails. The rail of God's goodness and God's grace, his mercy and enjoyment, And then the other rail. What's the other rail we have seen vividly in Paul's life? Persecution and opposition, suffering and discouragement. You see, discouragement is a funny thing, isn't it? And I don't mean ha-ha funny. But discouragement has a way of sneaking up on us all. All right, and sure, it comes in the typical shades and forms and fashions that I listed before. But discouragement can creep into our lives and our minds and our hearts in the weirdest and strangest moments. It can creep in like when things are going really, really well. Any of you have ever experienced that? Right? The family's doing well. Maybe business is succeeding. I'm secure in my job. A ministry is healthy. Yet I have this feeling and this sense of just being discouraged. Paul is preaching, he's traveling. He's advancing the gospel. People are receiving Christ. He's baptizing them. Yet there is this feeling in Paul. You see, to understand this, we have to understand not just what Luke lays out, but what Paul himself lays out. He said, Kyle, I I didn't necessarily see that in Acts 18. I I didn't hear that as, as, as Al read that. Let's go find out what Paul felt and what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 2. Let's look at this. This is Paul's perception This is Paul's description of Acts 18. And I, 
when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A very familiar passage. And I was with you. Here's how I felt when I was with you, Corinth, when I first showed up. In weakness, in fear, in much trembling. In my speech, in my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Leave that up there. The first thing I want you to key in on that passage is how Paul shows up into Corinth. Not going, we got this. Remember, he's just coming out of Athens. Right? Where he talks with these great philosophers. And he uses lofty speech and eloquence like you cannot imagine. And he says, and I come into Corinth and I'm tired. I'm afraid. I'm trembling. Why? I'm discouraged. I think oftentimes that's read and it's going weakness, humility, fear. This is not talking about his perception before the Lord. This is talking his perception before the Corinthian people. Why would Paul feel that way? Well, this is where we have to dig into the context a little bit of Corinth. This is where we have to get underneath the surface. Kind of like last week, we got underneath the surface in Athens with with the Epicureans and the Stoics. We need to understand Corinth. And if you have that map for me, Jim, put put that up for me. We're at the tail end of Paul's second missionary journey here. And you can see Corinth is up here on my left. You know, well, you're left too now that I'm looking at it. Uh, over here. And you see Athens is just to the right of that. Okay? This is as far west as Paul will go in his journeys. But Corinth, and you can kind of see that little land bridge there separating two seas. Corinth was a place, this, this area here between Athens and Corinth, was a place where ships would cut through. All right? And so that's an important fact because it actually made Corinth very um, affluent, a city of very, uh, an incredible amount of wealth because of its position and where it was at just geographically. And so we could spend time talking about that, but it's sufficient to say that this was a very, very important city, a very powerful city in the trade route, and it controlled a lot of things. Kind of the idea here, the people who, who lived here, they had access to anything and everything your mind could imagine. And they had the means to be able to purchase it. Commercial goods, pleasures, anything like that. They were a people who could buy it. And most of them, they purchased and consumed without regard. They were affluent. It was a relatively large city, about 200,000 people. That's a big city for back in the day. And Paul, here's why he's feeling these things. He's going, I'm going into that kind of city. The city was so much affluence, so much self-reliance, pleasures, and and particularly, um, and and because we have a mixed audience, I, I won't spend a lot of time here. What was rampant there was sexual immorality. You can read the letters to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. You can pick that up in more detail, okay? But that was rampant in this community. And Paul goes, I, I have to go into this proud, arrogant city who are wealthy, who are successful, who have access to anything and everything and preach the gospel. Right? He goes, not things that are plausible, but things that are completely different and, in fact, antithetical to how they live and how they operate their everyday lives. And Paul comes with a message, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, of this. Jesus Christ crucified. That's the message. 
He says, I sought to know nothing else among you other than Christ crucified, the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, my words, I didn't come with eloquence. I didn't come in these flowery words, but I came with the one thing that you needed. And that's this idea, you can't save yourself. This heart, you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't do anything except receive it. And Paul goes, that's the culture I'm going into with that message? You can see how he would feel a little afraid, right? You can see why he would be a little weak or feeble feeling. You can see how he would be trembling a little bit to go, listen, if there's any climate, if there's any culture that's going to reject the message of the gospel, it's this one. They have no need. Pause. Sound familiar? Right, I, was, I was trying to think of a modern-day Corinth, right? And yes, there's some nuance to this. Like we were talking about a modern-day Athens. I think we all can pick up this. Right, Vegas on, on steroids in McKinney. Affluent, successful, powerful. All the resources we need. And Paul goes, I've got to go into that city. And to declare that you are powerless, you are broken, you're poor, you're broke, and you can't fix yourself. Um, one of the things, interestingly, that the Corinthians valued and prized was oratory. Like speech, lofty words. They loved hearing people talk and give out their, you know, their deep thoughts. And answer this, could Paul do that? Could Paul come in eloquence, in beautiful speech, in deep theology and philosophy? Could he do that? Yeah, you, some of you are nodding your heads. He just came out of Athens. He just came out of Athens standing with the greatest thinkers and talked with them and spoke with them in eloquence and with power and authority. And he goes, but here's the deal, Corinthians. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you need. And you don't need lofty speech. You don't need another podcast. You don't need another great speaker to try to convince you of what the Spirit wants to say to you. Here's what I'm going to tell you, what you need. You need Christ and him crucified and put your trust in him that you cannot save yourselves. There's not an amount of wealth or recesses, resources or intellect that can redeem you. It's through the cross of Christ alone, not lofty speech. Here it is, Corinthians. And that generated a feeling in Paul and he feels the weight and it causes him to be discouraged. And all those things I read from 1 Corinthians 2. And so there are a couple of things as we walk through uh, Acts 18, I want to highlight in how Paul responded to Jesus fulfilling his promise. Okay? And now as I highlight these things, especially the first two, don't think for a moment this is about moralism. Okay? Especially coming off of last week. This is not Paul just going, try harder, do this, do that. No, these things come from a place of Paul being saved by grace through faith. This comes from a relationship with the Lord, all right? And so the first thing I want you to see in, verse, uh, in chapter 18, and really it's, it's found in verses 2 through 5, is this. Is that Paul's response to this way, that Paul's response to even his emotion in this, is that Paul worked hard. Did, did you pick that up when Al read it? 
look at it. He's, he's with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And it says in verse 2, And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. So this is a picture here of Paul coming into Corinth, right? Understanding that God has called him here and God has led him here and he's feeling all this weight and all this pressure. Notice that Paul, it doesn't paralyze Paul from doing anything, right? He doesn't just go, you know what? I'm going to sit over here, Lord, until you just kind of deal with these emotions in me, right? You know this fear, you know this trembling, you know this weakness that I'm coming in here. He actually does what he knows to do. And what is that? He makes tents. Paul is a tent maker. Paul, we could say, is this. He's, he's bivocational. And when we see tent maker, this is just kind of maybe an, it's an extra thing, right? Uh, a tent maker doesn't mean that Paul just makes tents, okay? Like, that could be one of the things. It probably means he's a leather good maker, right? He works in leather, okay? And so he finds Priscilla and Aquila, and they do the same thing. And so Paul here, he's working with his hands. He's doing what he knows to do. And then it also says that he's preaching in the synagogue every Sabbath. So Paul is working tent making, he's preaching in the Sabbath, and he's also, we know, obviously from his letters, he's writing letters to the churches that he planted. Paul is working very hard. Now hear, hear me, he's not working hard to, to try to get God's approval. He's working in light of the grace, in light of the mercy he has been given. Paul works extremely hard toward advancing the gospel no matter what it takes. If it makes him take a tent that makes him writing a letter, preaching in the synagogue. Paul is working extremely hard in the face of how he's even feeling. And hear me, this is not just, you know, pull up your bootstraps and get going. But see, this is a very God-given and God-driven ethic in Paul's life that he works very hard for the glory of God. He's not just sitting around, right? You don't work hard to get the gospel. You get the gospel and you will work hard. That's what we see in Paul's life. It's a beautiful thing. Second thing is this, in verses 6 through 8, right, where Paul is testifying to Jesus Christ in the synagogue, what happens there? They kick him out. They reject his message. The second thing I want you to see is this, that Paul, in pursuing the things God has called him to do, faced trials. This is nothing new for us with Paul, right? But Paul does something interesting here. He shakes the dust off, Right? That is, that is hearkening back to the Old Testament, right? Where it's this kind of act of judgment where Paul goes, listen, I have done what God has called me to do. You have heard the message and your rejection of it is on you and not me. All right. And so Paul faces these trials and he says, essentially, like, listen, you are responsible to God. And I think when we face these things in our life, like rejection and like um, uh, discouragement or disappointment, especially as we share the gospel, especially in the, those things like that, we have to understand that the outcome or the consequence of someone's reception is not on you or I, okay? That is on them, and that is the Spirit of God moving in their life, all right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But the third thing, and this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time, more than working hard and more than understanding that he just faced the trials, Paul acted on God's promise. Third thing, Paul acted on God's promise to him. And this is verses 9, really through 17, but I want to focus on verses 9 and 9 through 11. What is the word of Jesus to Paul after all he's been through, even in Corinth, after all he has faced? Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Discouraged, 
weak, afraid. What is the word of the Lord to him? Don't be afraid. And if you've read your Bible any at all, you know that's a common phrase from the Lord. You know that's a common phrase in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, right? It's a phrase with uh, uh, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Well, that's great, right? But why? Why does Paul, why do we need that from the Lord? Because God uniquely understands that we are frail beings. That if we're honest, we oftentimes live our lives in fear. True or untrue? Most of you are nodding your head. Very true, right? We're afraid of what people think. We're afraid of hurt. We're afraid of persecution. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of losing security. And think about it. Paul, this great super apostle, rugged, tough, is not immune to fear and weakness and trembling or discouragement. Paul, maybe the the daily opposition has just worn him down so much more. Could you really blame him for feeling the way he does? How many of us could stand in this? You see, I think Paul is getting depleted with all the debates and all the angry words and all the stones being hurled at his head. And the Lord comes to him uniquely and personally and goes, No, listen, don't be afraid. Continue to speak because there are people here who are mine who don't know it yet. You see, maybe Paul, after leaving the synagogue, after dusting his hands off, goes, listen, I'm just going to, I'm going to exit Corinth. I'm going to leave quietly. I'm going to close my mouth. But Jesus says, no, Paul, not today. But what is the basis? What is the foundation that Paul has? What's the confidence he has to believe Jesus when he says Don't be afraid. It's right here. Verse 10. For I am with you. Why can Jesus make the claim to Paul, don't be afraid? And Paul goes, all right, I trust you. It's not because of any exterior things. It's not because of external things. It's for this reality because Jesus looks at him and goes, here's why you don't have to be afraid. I'm with you. I'm walking with you into persecution, into hardships, into that rail that wants to discourage you. I am present with you. Right? Isaiah 43, 2. If you give me that. Yeah. Some of you, you need to post this verse everywhere where you can see it. Because here's the confidence we have why King Jesus would say to you, even this morning, in the face of your discouragement, in the face of your fear, in the face of the things that you're struggling with, he would go, listen, don't be afraid. You go, that's easy for you to say. He goes, here's the confidence I want you to have because I'm with you. I'm not leaving you to float out there with just my word. I'm going with you. He even says this in the Old Testament. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Why? Why is that? Because the Lord says, I'm with you. Notice it doesn't say you won't walk through the fire. Notice it doesn't say you won't walk through the waters. Notice it doesn't say you won't walk through those waves that are going to crash in your life. Notice it doesn't say you won't have years like 2020. Notice it doesn't say that you won't have marriages that will struggle. Notice it says, listen, here's the confidence. I'm with you. That's why you don't have to be afraid. That's why you can truly take those feelings and those thoughts of discouragement, of despair, and you can submit them before the Lord, honestly going, listen, this is what my heart feels, and the word of the Lord can be to you. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. And it's not on your own power. It's not on your own strength. It's because I am with you. Did the guys go into the fiery furnace? 
Yes, they went into the fire furnace. Did Daniel go into the lion's den? Yes, he went into the lion's den. But what made the difference in both of those scenes? The presence of God there. What will make the difference in your life and in my life? If we have any hope, any shot of getting over fear or discouragement, it's not our willpower. It's not our work, right? It's not what we can muster up. It's that God is present with us. And I know that. So I can walk through those seasons where the diagnosis comes. So I can walk through those moments of hardship and struggle. I can walk through persecution. I can walk through rejection. I can walk through failure, knowing and confident that whatever comes before me, Jesus is with me. And Jesus is reminding Paul, I'm with you. Park Church, I'm with you. I'm with you. Keep speaking. Keep leading. You see, obedience is rooted in a promise. You hear me? Obedience, your obedience to Jesus, Paul's obedience to Jesus was not rooted in his intellect or his self-power. It was rooted in the promise. And the promise is what? Where Jesus says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Obey. Trust me. Trust that my promises are perfect. My promises come to fruition, but you don't get to define how they do. And so, going on, verse 11 here. He says, and he stayed. Well, well, actually, let's back up here to verse 10. He says, for I am with you. And then he says, and no one will attack you to harm you. Hmm. Now, hear me. What's happened to Paul city after city after city after city after city? Beatings, right? What, what, what the Lord just said to him, hey, this ain't going to happen to you. You need to understand something about this text particularly. That is a promise for Paul here in Corinth. And guess what happens? He's unharmed. That is not a universal promise for Paul. I mean, I've heard this pulled out and gone, you know, this is a universal promise. You'll never have anyone harm you. Paul will go, oh, otherwise... This is a very specific promise to Paul here. And then it says, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. 1 Corinthians 2. How did Paul come into the city with fear and weakness and trembling, discouraged? And yet, what does he do? He hears the promise of his Lord. I am with you. Do not be afraid. And what does he do? He stays put for a year and a half, right? To declare the word of God. This is a beautiful thing. Like Paul could, Paul could have just left. Why did he stay? I'm convinced he stayed because he actually heard from the Lord. And he believed the Lord in what he said. And also, God had plans for the church in Corinth that Paul knew nothing about. Did you pick that up? Like, there are things in your life that God has plans for you that you have no idea about them. You can't see them. I'm sure Paul looks at Corinth and is like, this city? Man, they have no need. They have, they have not everything they have. Is there. What, who am I? Like, here's the message of the cross. And God goes, oh, Paul, you missed it. There are people who are here that are mine. And here's the part I want you to play. Speak. 
proclaim, share the gospel. Now, here's what we need to, we need to do a little bit of work here. There are people who are here who are mine who don't know it yet. Here's something we believe absolutely that the Bible teaches. Hear me clearly. That God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign over salvation. God knows and sees everyone whom he is going to save. This is what Paul would write in Romans and what he would write in other places like Ephesians. Okay, now some of you are starting to wiggle in your seat. Track with me, okay? God is sovereign over salvation. He absolutely knows who he is going to redeem and who his saving work is going to be applied to. However, you say, well, what about, what about choice? What about free will? What about people choosing to follow Jesus? Here's what I want you to see. That the Bible teaches God's sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility and free will simultaneously without flinching. Right? And so here's what we have to get really good at doing. We have to stretch our theological rubber band around those two things and see that's how the word of God teaches them. And what we see here in Acts 18 is God's going, listen, there are people in that city that are mine. They just don't know it yet. And Paul, here's the part you're going to play. You're going to speak and you're going to let them know who I am. And here is the cool reality. They're going to receive it. Because some of you are wrestling with that idea of God being sovereign over salvation. You go, well, if God knows this, then why do we even evangelize? I get this question asked all, all the time. What's the point of evangelism if God already knows who he's going to save and they're going to be saved? Here's what I'd ask you. If it's pointless, then why in the world would the Lord ask Paul to stay and keep on sharing the gospel in Acts 18? The point is that evangelism is not pointless. It is the very reason the Lord says to Paul to keep preaching because he's using it as an encouragement to Paul to go, listen, you come into this desperate place, you come into this dire place where it seems like there will be no fruit, and I'm telling you there's going to be fruit, not because you're eloquent, not because you're powerful, but because I'm saving because I've called those to myself. And so there is very equal parts here, not in salvation, but in what our responsibility is to do. And so I can imagine what God is calling here is you speak, you share, you love, you live with gospel intentionality, and I'm going to save Paul. Do you see how that would be encouraging? That Paul wakes up the next morning and goes, listen, it doesn't matter what I face. As long as I'm being obedient to what God has called me to do in sharing the gospel, he is going to be the one saving. Why? Because he's with me. He's the one who saves. And so it's with that confidence that we proclaim, we open our mouths in our lives to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because God has already ordained those whom he's going to save. And he says, listen, you play your part. You evangelize, you go to the lost. J.I. Packer, and maybe this would be even a better resource for you to read if you're wrestling with this. He, he wrote a book called Evangelism in the Sovereignty of God. I want you to see these quotes. He says, were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. Evangelism is man's work, but the giving of faith is God's. The sovereignty of God and grace gives us our only hope for success in evangelism. It should make us bold. I think one of the reasons Paul had so much confidence and boldness in his preaching and in his evangelism is because he understood the sovereignty and grace of God that was reminded to him in Acts 18. 
that there is nothing that can hinder the Lord from saving. And he goes, listen, Paul, here's what I need you to do. I need you to do what I've called you to do. And that's proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the same Lord would look at us through the pages of scripture and he would go, listen, Parks Church, listen, saving is on the Lord, but proclaiming is on you. You proclaim the gospel. You herald the gospel with your life and with your lips and watch how the Lord saves in any and every context. Why? Because it's not up to us. Just like it wasn't up to Paul. You see, we labor in vain if the results are up to us. But praise be to God that it is his power and his spirit that draws men and women and children, those who are far off, God brings to himself. Like, hear me. You realize that God's doing that very thing this morning. The gospel's going forth. The gospel's going forth proclaimed here in teaching. It's being proclaimed in our singing. It's being proclaimed in our sharing one to another. And the beauty of what we get to do, like I talked about last week, the good life, is that we get to join God in participation of him saving and seeing those who are far off from God like we once were redeemed and brought into the family. God's doing that. For some of you, it's salvation. For others of you, it's waking your sleepy soul up to the reality of who God is, that he's pursuing you, that he's loving you, that he's drawing you, and he's using fallible instruments like you and me to do that. So you go, well, man, I, I sure wish I had these promises given by the Lord like Paul did. I mean, the Lord showed up to him, right? In a vision, in a dream, right? I, I sure wish... I had God speaking to me about his promises and his character. I'm sure I wish I had a disclosure of how God is for me and will never leave me or forsake me. I sure wish I could see how I should never be afraid and that he'd be with me. I sure wish he'd... Oh. You see, Paul didn't have the New Testament. You do. And listen, I, I'm not discrediting that there are moments where God shows up uniquely and supernaturally and powerfully and he illuminates realities. Like, listen, to, to, to where you are and speak specifically to where you are. But this is the primary means and mode of God's communication to you and to me to disclose who he is, to disclose his promises to us, that we can look at them and go, I can be sure. Because his word says so. Listen, those promises that were just spoken to Paul are written here for you and me so that when we feel fearful, that when we feel discouraged, that when we feel weak, we can come to the pages of Scripture and go, God, I need to feast and be reminded upon who you are. Feed me with your promises. Let me devour them and take them to the bank because I know that you are trustworthy. I know that I can have confidence in you because, God, I don't feel it right now. I feel discouraged. You see, here's what the enemy wants to do when you feel discouraged. He wants to isolate you. You feel discouraged? Don't go to church. You're just going to feel more guilty. Oh, you're feeling discouraged? Hey, get, get your stuff figured out and then get into community. That's the enemy. Listen, when we feel weak, when we feel fearful, when we feel discouraged is when we need to step into the word of God, into the community of faith more than ever to go, listen, I must be reminded of the promises of God that are true for my life. Listen, that's the only thing that will convince me otherwise. Not run the other way. And so we go to the word, filling up by the power of the Holy Spirit, one truth at a time on the promises of God. See, some of you walk in here this morning, I know it, maybe many of you, 
discouraged, beaten down, afraid, tired. I, I, I don't know. Take, take your pick on the emotions that run in that rail of our lives. And what God wants to meet and what he's meeting, and I hope you see that with this morning, is his promise. Is his promise that you don't have to be afraid. He's not saying he won't walk you through those things. What he's saying to you is as you go through those things, I'm with you. As you face that, I'm there. And that's what changes everything. His presence, his presence, his presence, his presence. And so this morning, I just want us to spend a few moments in his presence. Again, I know his presence has been here, but specifically asking the Lord in this community as we, after we've just sat in his word to remind us of who he is. Remind us that he's a God who, who loves us and cares for us, who will, never, who will never forsake you. Do you understand what that means? Like he's not just going to go leave you out there hanging going, I know you feel discouraged, but come on. No, he's a good father who draws you near. He's a God who understands your anxiety, understands your depression, understands those things that are, the, if you're honest, the control shaft of your life. And what he wants to do kindly is draw you back to himself draw you back and reassure you with the promises he has made and not promises that he might or might not keep but promises that are sure and true promises that we can count on more than we can count on anything else in this life so let's just take a couple moments and I'm asking the Spirit to remind my heart of what he said in Acts 18, what he said in countless other places in Scripture. Father, how easily and often do we forget? Do we forget about your word that makes so many promises of truths that are absolutely certain. But God, uniquely this morning, I just, Lord, I sense that there is just a spirit in here, one that resonates with this idea of discouragement, of being afraid, uncertain. God, the only thing we have to stand on is your word and promises that come from it. The hope that you're a God who does not stay distant or removed from us, but you're a God who comes and is present with us each and every moment, in each and every feeling, in each and every thought. That you're not a God who's trying to, to get us to work to achieve the next level, but you're a God who draws us near You're a God who takes people like Paul, take people like me, frail, broken sinners. And you bring healing and salvation. You take churches like the parks, 
And you say, no matter what season I walk you through, I'm with you. In the waters, in the fire, in the struggle, I'm with you. And so, Lord, in light of that, we can, we can stand up. And we can hear your word also to us. Do not be afraid. So, God, I pray this morning that you might heal hearts, bring encouragement to the discouraged, bring confidence to those fearful and uncertain, bring a steadiness on your promises and a confidence in you, not how we think this thing should play out, but our confidence is in you. And however you want to to roll out your promises, however you want to deal with my heart that is prone to wonder, do it. God, I love you. I love you for this faith family, this visible demonstration of encouragement, of work, of grace, of mercy. Continue to move in her powerfully and mighty for your glory so that those who are far off, who you've called by name, would come home. Jesus, all of this is for your glory and in your name. Amen and amen.